Our text is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to read chapter 5, verses 12 to 18. Although my preaching text was actually going to only be up to verse 15. Well, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 to 18. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You may be seated. Let's pray. O oh, great God, the one who has inspired your holy scripture so that we would know the mind of Christ, Lord, so that we would be equipped for every good work, so that we would be fully furnished with all that we need, sufficient for every task, Lord, to live for your glory and to accomplish your will within your people. Lord, thank you that you have given us this, ta this text today, Lord, to instruct us in how we may be used by you to build up the body of Christ. Lord, I ask you may please grant your Holy Spirit to your people to take the word that is preached and to plant it deeply into our hearts. May it bear great fruit for the glory of your name. Lord, thank you for the ways in which you have given us already fruit in this area. Lord, may we build one another up all the more that you may be, your glory may be manifest through us. This church may be built up, Lord, to the praise of your glorious grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's my privilege to be able to preach to you again, to be able to bring God's word from the text that we have in front of us, to instruct us to see what is God saying to this congregation. And I have to echo my brother, praise the Lord for the ways in which he has enabled you to live out this passage already. I feel almost that I don't need to stand here and preach this text because you're doing it. You're doing it. But God in his grace and mercy is continuing to build us up. And so he's given us this word again so that we can do it all the more, that we can grow all the more in our responsibilities one to another. And actually, that's what this passage is about. It's about the responsibility that Christians have in the church. And remember that this is a letter written to a specific church. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And I think in order to get the context of these words, we need to look at the actual story of Paul's interactions with those people and, and summarize for ourselves what this letter is about. So the historical context for Thessalonians is found in Acts chapter 16 and 17. And you don't have to go there. I'll just remind you of what happened. This was Paul's second missionary journey. He had with him Silas and Timothy, and they wanted to go east into Asia, but the Holy Spirit prevented them. And they wanted to go north. The Holy Spirit prevented them. And eventually the Holy Spirit guided them to Macedonia. You remember there was that vision of a, of a Macedonian crying out to Paul, come over and help us. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they went into Macedonia. This was into the west towards Europe. They went to Philippi. And you remember what happened. They were put in jail the Philippian, the earthquake came, the Philippian jailer was saved, they were persecuted, and they had to leave. And so then from Philippi, they left, and eventually they arrived in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, it says on three successive Sabbaths, Paul taught them from the word of God and reasoned with the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And God blessed that work 
Acts chapter 17, verse 4 says that many of them were persuaded and they believed in the Lord Jesus, as did a great many Greeks and not a few leading women. Unfortunately, that made the Jews jealous and they started a riot and they persecuted not only Paul, but they persecuted the Thessalonian believers, those who had listened to Paul. And so because of this intense persecution, the Thessalonian church sent Paul and his companions away. And Paul went down to Athens and then eventually to Corinth. But his heart remained with the Thessalonians. He was anxious for them. He worried about them. He worried that maybe the tempter would come and tempt them and that he would have labored for them in vain. And so all, all the time that Paul was away, his heart longed for them. And eventually it got to the point where, where Paul couldn't stand it anymore and he sent Timothy to go back to Thessalonica to, to find out what had happened to that church. Timothy came back and he brought with him a very, very good report of the growth of faith and the love of the believers in Thessalonica. And it, it moved Paul's heart. And Paul was so thankful, thankful for God's work in them, thankful for the work of, of, of his word in them, that he writes this letter. And, and that's the context of 1 Thessalonians. There's, there's not a lot of um, theology. There is theology, but, but really it's a letter expressing his thanksgiving and his appreciation for what God has done in this church. They were an exemplary church all throughout that region. Uh, their faith and their love for Paul and their love for Christ had been made known. And so that's what Paul's doing in this chapter. In chapter one, he, he thanks God for them. He remembers God, how God worked in their hearts and granted them faith. He knew that God had chosen them because they accepted the gospel despite great difficulties and persecutions. And he had seen real fruit born in these Thessalonians. They became an, an example to the entire region how they had turned to God from idols, waiting in faith for the return of his son from heaven, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so Paul, he's just effusive in his thanksgiving to God for them. In chapter two, he expresses how he had preached the word of God. Even though he was shamefully treated, he preached with boldness, not to please man, but to please God. In chapter two, verses five and eight, he reminded them he, he didn't come with pretext of flattery. He didn't come for greed. He didn't come to seek glory from people, but he was gentle. He was like a nursing mother, ready to share not just the gospel, but his very life with these precious believers, working night and day while proclaiming the gospel to them. And they themselves were witnesses how earnestly Paul and his companions exhorted them to walk worthy of God. And these Thessalonians responded well. In chapter two, uh, the, the last part of chapter two, it talks about how they accepted the word of God, Paul's words, not as the words of man, but as they actually are, as the word of God. And they bore persecution from their own countrymen in response to the gospel. Of course, the Thessalonians needed instruction. They were strong, but they still needed to be exhorted to walk out their Christian faith. In chapter four, Paul exhorts them to holy living, to please God, whose will for them is their sanctification. In chapter four, verses nine to 12, Paul exhorts them to love one another. He says, actually, I have no need to write of you to love one another because you're doing it already. Nonetheless, he exhorts them to love one another all the more. He also exhorted them to work hard. Apparently, some of the believers had become lazy and slothful. And then he encouraged their hearts as they waited for the return of Christ. Actually, the Thessalonians, they, they thought that Christ's turn was, return would, would be truly imminent, as, as it will be. But they became fearful as they waited. And as they waited and as, as Christians began to die, they were fearful and they grieved what will happen to these Christians as they wait, as they fall asleep before Christ's come. Paul reminded them of the hope that they have 
In chapter four, he reminds them that Jesus Christ will come again and those who have died in Christ will rise first. And he continues that word of encouragement in chapter five when he tells them that Christ's coming will be unexpected like a thief in the night or like labor pains on a pregnant woman. But he urges them, let us keep awake and be sober for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we, if we look at big picture, he is appreciating them for the work of God in them. And he is exhorting them and encouraging them in the glorious hope that God has given them in the gospel. And then we come to this verse where we are today, where he says, encourage one another, build one another up just as you were doing. This baby church that was growing needed to continue to grow, to continue to grow into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. Paul already had expressed his love for them and his thanksgiving for them, and he had exhorted them, and he had reminded them of their glorious hope in Christ. What was left was for them to just take all that Paul had given them and put it into practice, building up the body until they attain to maturity. But how? How? What, what, what were they going to do? Just like Pastor John was sharing with the children, how can these Christians carry out this work of building one another up? And so Paul gives very clear instructions, very practical instructions in verses 12 to 15. And actually, these are three categories of responsibility within the church. Firstly, he addresses, Paul addresses the responsibilities that the elders have to the flock. Then he addresses the responsibilities that the flock has to the elders. And lastly, he addresses the responsibilities the flock has to one another. So let's look at each of these categories of responsibility. Remembering that Paul is addressing a healthy church. Actually, you know, if we look at the epistles, we could argue perhaps the Thessalonian church seems the most mature, the most growing of the churches in the epistles. They were exemplary in faith and devotion and steadfastness and hope, love for Paul, love for one another. And even this growing church needed to fulfill their responsibilities to one another to build up the body. Not just them, but also us. God's command for us is to continue to build one another up, following these categories of responsibility to build the body up in love. So let, let's look at these categories. First, the responsibility of pastors to their flock. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So here we see a number of responsibilities that a pastor has to his congregation. First, they are to labor among the flock. The Greek word for labor is kopio, which literally means labor to the point of exhaustion. The sense is to work hard, to labor among the flock diligently with all of their might up to the point where they become tired in the work and become exhausted. This is the pastor's responsibility. He is to work among his sheep. He's a shepherd for the sheep. They labor in the feeding of the sheep. They toil diligently to study, to have the word of God in order to give it to the people of God. They labor in watching out to protect the flock. They care for those that stray on guard against wolves that may arise from within or from without. Pastors toil in prayer, toil in safeguarding the flock from false teaching, on guard against sinful attitudes that may arise or interpersonal conflicts that may arise and destroy the work of God. It's hard work. Counseling is hard work. Dealing with the urgent spiritual needs is hard work. Discipling, teaching, exhorting, rebuking, encouraging, visiting, reminding. These are the jobs that a pastor labors in. It is difficult work. It is work that brings weariness. 
George Whitfield, the great revival preacher in the first Great Awakening, preached some 18,000 sermons in his life. That would be on average about 40 hours of preaching a week all his life from the time he was probably about 20. As he was about to preach his last sermon, he, he was very sick. And somebody remarked to him, Sir, you look more fit for bed than to preach. To which Whitfield responded, True, sir. But then he prayed, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of it. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the field, seal thy truth, and come home to die. And he preached that last sermon. And then he passed on to glory that night. This is the same example as Apostle Paul. If you think about all the ways in which Apostle Paul labored, his, his, his toil for the church and his concern for the church and his care for the church, it's all throughout all of his epistles, how he loved them, how in Galatians, how he said, how I, I travail like a woman in labor until Christ is formed in you. How he's gentle like a nursing mother, caring for the flock, toiling to the very end for the sake of Christ's church. That's the responsibility of a pastor. It stretches and, and far extends any man's limited resources. Note also where the pastor does his work. As much as um, we know that pastors spend much time in study, the pastor's work is among the flock. John and I are not superior to the flock. We're not parked in some ivory tower and then we come down to give you God's word and then go back to our tower. No, pastors are not aloof from the sheep, but we labor among the sheep, on behalf of the sheep, knowing that we ourselves are also Jesus' sheep and a part of God's flock. That's one of the responsibilities. The next responsibility, Paul says, is that they are to be over the flock in the Lord. This is to exercise spiritual oversight. The Greek translated over you, who are over you in the Lord, is proistomai. Literally means to manage. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 3, where it talks about qualifications for an elder. And it says that an elder must manage his family well, his own home and his family well. That's one of the qualifications. That same word, manage, is the word that Paul uses here to talk about those who are over you in the Lord. So it means that elders, pastors, manage God's church with God's authority. But don't get the wrong, wrong idea. They're not like some bean counter or a, a manager like a boss at work. Because proestamai is also translated in t Titus chapter 3 as devote themselves. Devote themselves. So the pastor is devoted themselves to exercise spiritual authority, managing God's affairs in the church with loving devotion to God and to God's people. It's not his own authority, but God's authority that he exercises as an office bearer, rooted in and limited by what God has spoken in his word. So pastors of this church are to be over you in the Lord, but not lording over you as God's managers not using you for your agenda, but devoted to you in the Lord. That's our responsibility. And lastly, Paul says they are to admonish the flock. The Greek word here probably is familiar to you, nuotheto, uh, nuthetio, from which we get the word nuthetic counseling. Maybe some of you know that word. Nuthetic counseling just means biblical counseling, counseling somebody in their spiritual problems from the Bible. Literally, it means to instruct, to exhort, and to offer clear warning. Pastors bear that responsibility to instruct and to exhort and to warn God's flock. They pattern the word of God. They exhort obedience to God's commands. They preach the whole counsel of God's word. And they provide clear warning for those who will remain disobedient. Notice how Clearly, the, the pastor's toil and authority come into focus in the admonition that they give. This is, this is where the pastor's authority lies. It's not in our experience. It's not in our superior wisdom. It's not from our education. 
uh, it's not because we have more eloquence. No, it is because we have been entrusted with the responsibility of instructing you from Scripture. Paul's another example here. When he was with the Thessalonians, he labored night and day to proclaim to them the gospel of God. When he was with the Corinthians, he determined to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. So I'm spending a little bit of time here talking about the pastor's role because it exercised my own heart. But what wisdom do I have? What wisdom does John have in himself or Vince in ourselves? We're like the doctor that's going to amputate the toe instead of treating the flu. That's the kind of mistake that we would make. We are woefully unequipped to serve this flock by our own wisdom. All we have to give to you is God's mighty and most holy word. All we can give to you is admonition from the good news of his son. That's the reservoir that a faithful pastor can draw from. That, that's the only reservoir a faithful pastor can draw from. And praise the Lord. This reservoir is fully sufficient for every need that you may have or that any body may have. Christ is sufficient for every trial, for every sin, for every crisis, for every dark night of the soul. If you have nothing but Christ, O Christian, you have a very precious and powerful resource. You have every spiritual strength or blessing that you need in the universe. O fellow pastor, though you may feel the burden of the work Christ is sufficient. And so with God's help and with his grace, we do not peddle ourselves to you. We simply proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present every one of you mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, and John and I would agree by his grace, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Colossians chapter 1. 28 and 29. Please, my brothers and sisters, remind us and hold us accountable for these responsibilities God has given us for you. Let's move on to the second category, the responsibilities of the flock towards their pastors. Go back to verse 12 and 13. Actually, I, I kind of took a little bit of liberty here because if you look at 12 and 13, there are no imperative commands addressing the pastors, right? It doesn't say anything to the pastors. It says, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Actually, there are no imperatives to the pastors. He's saying, as the pastors are laboring among you and as they are over you and as they admonish you, this is what I want you to do. He is not commanding the pastors per se, but we can see the commands there in, in, implicit. They're doing those things. And now Paul is urging the congregation, as your pastors do this, this is what I want you to do. This is the responsibility that you have towards your pastors. So what does Paul say? First, he urges them to respect those who labor among them. The Greek word is, it's, it's, you'd expect like a really magnificent word. The Greek word there just is oida. Literally, it means to know. Know your pastors. That doesn't mean like, hi, I'm Joshua, you know my name. It means to recognize them. Recognize their character. Recognize the sacrifice they make on your behalf. Recognize the work that they're trying to do. And then respond accordingly with appreciation, with honor, with respect. Not only because of the office, but because of the character you recognize in the man that qualifies him for the office. And because you recognize the service that he is doing, not perfectly, but faithfully, by God's help on behalf of the church. Second, Paul says, to esteem them very highly in love. This is a very interesting word, hyper Ekperisu, hyper ekperisu, it's a compound word, three separate words put together. Hyper means above, ek means out, and perisu means overflow. So 
Paul is basically saying abundantly beyond out of the overflow to esteem them very highly. The same word is used in Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul talks about how God can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The same word, far more abundantly. That's the esteem them very highly in love. Hold them in high regard. Recognize their worth. Not worship the person, not unrealistically putting them on an impossible pedestal. Men are men. Even the best man still has feet of clay. And, and of course, we're not above correction. Just as we hold you accountable to the word of God, you must hold us accountable to the same word. But it means to esteem them highly according to the abundant love that you have for them. Not because that they've achieved um, an impossible standard that you've set up, not because they've perfect, not because they're never going to fail you. They've never dropped the ball. No man is perfect. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. But verse 13 says, because of their work. You esteem your pastor because of the work that he is doing. You look at the trajectory of his wife, of his life, and the achievements made. And you look at what he's trying to do and and the labor that he's devoting on your behalf and you esteem him because you watched him, you've watched him give himself away for the sake of the congregation. Most of us, when we leave for work, we, we say, okay, bye, honey, I'm, I'm off to class or I'm off to the office or you know, I'm off to the factory or whatever. When a pastor leaves for work, he says, honey, I'm off to fight the ruler of the power of the air. I'm off to fight hell and take on the whole world. That's the reality. It's, it's a frightful task. We are accountable to God and we'll give an account on the day of judgment for how we have used this office God has given us. We're judged by the same standard, but with a stricter judgment. And that's why your esteem is very important. And I can say, and I know John agrees, that we know how much esteem you have for us. And we give thanks to God and um, are very much humbled by your uh, abundance of your esteem. Praise God. Thirdly, be at peace among yourselves. Most commenters agree that because the prior text is talking about pastors and congregation, that this one also likely is referring to peace between elders and the congregation. The more that elders understand the frightful responsibility before God to toil among the flock, and the more that the congregation esteems them in love, the more that that will lead to peace. Now then, let's go to the third responsibility, the, the responsibility that the flock has to each other. So having taught the Thessalonian believers the shepherd's responsibility to the flock and the flock's responsibility to the shepherd, Paul moves on to teach them what needs to flow out of that. How is the flock supposed to live out what the pastors are teaching them? What is the purpose of this leadership anyways? And we find that in verse 14, where Paul says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Essentially, Paul is urging the believers to build one another up, to take upon themselves the task of building up each Christian in their midst to spiritual maturity. He is urging, in one word, for discipleship, for discipleship to occur within the church. It reminds us of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. Remember, Ephesians, Paul goes through this whole uh, rich theological section in, in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And then in chapter 4, he changes gears and he talks about now, how ought we to live this out? And he begins that section by talking about how Jesus Christ has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And that's what Paul's meaning here. So that the purpose of these pastors as they equip the saints and, and, and the purpose of their leadership role is to teach each member how to minister to the individual bodies, individual members of the body. So that everyone may do certain things to build up the body. 
So the elders toil and equip and admonish the flock and the, the congregation esteem and honor them. And then everyone turns around and helps one another to grow in Christ. And truly, this is how the church grows. People can come up with growth strategies and, and, uh, and 10 point plans and all these marketing schemes and everything else. That's not God's way. The normal means by which Christ builds up his church is that faithful men diligently bring the word of God to bear in the lives of God's people. And then by the power of God's Holy Spirit, they are equipped to live it out in their own lives and then take upon themselves the task of building up their brothers and sisters in the Lord to spiritual maturity. That's, that's church growth. And what impedes this growth? Very simply, it is sin. Sin, which impedes our fruitfulness. Sin, which impedes our ability to minister to one another. Sin, which impedes our ability to grow in our service to one another. So growth in effectiveness as a church and growth in maturity as a church and growth into becoming the church that glorifies God, it's about dealing with the sin in my life and then helping my brothers and sisters to deal with the sin in their life so that we can build ourselves up to maturity in Christ. Not that we do it ourselves, but that God is at work using one another as his instruments, as, as his agents to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another. So that's what Paul is teaching us to do, how to effectively carry out our responsibility of building up God's people in the church. So we're gonna to get to the specifics, but I'm taking a little bit of my time because I wanna give two warnings. Firstly, when it says, um, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, when it's urging us to disciple one another, we have to be careful. Discipleship is not a license to go around and put our nose in everyone's lives and then searching around looking for something that we can find to bring accusation against them. It's not a, my wife sometimes says, we're not fruit, fruit inspectors going around looking for anything that's rotten. No. Discipleship is about lovingly serving our brothers and sisters and helping them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, First, remove the log from your own eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And second, the other warning, discipleship is not an excuse to neglect your own walk. Sometimes people who struggle with their own obedience focus on others because that allows them not to face their own spiritual lack of maturity. No, we need to focus on God's word and heed the command from Galatians chapter six, which our brother read for us. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If we are to build one another up, we must do so with humility, with gentleness, with mercy. And Paul Washer says, most of all, perhaps, with a great big mirror. And we need to look into it a lot because the more we are aware of our own failings and our own weaknesses, the more graciously, the more gently, the more humbly we can help others. So with those things in mind, let's look at the specific instruction that God gives us in verse 14. Verse 14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Admonish, again, the same word as in verse 12, nutheteo, biblical instruction and exhortation with warning. And the idol here is the word ataktos, which literally means those who are out of order, out of line, undisciplined, slothful. It's used uh, outside of the Bible in uh, other Greek sources to talk about soldiers who are out of step or who break rank. The sense of the word then is as a person who is out of step with what God wants them to do. They're slothful in spiritual discipline. They're rebellious towards what God has commanded them. They're displaying an attitude of defiance, either willful defiance or 
negligent defiance to God's command. All of us may fall out of line. Sometimes we may be out, we may become undisciplined, become lazy, become uncharitable, ungrateful. Our speech may become infected with uh, just the negativity. We may become slothful with our spiritual responsibilities in our home to lead our families to, to worship God. Maybe we come out of line in a way that we handle interpersonal conflict. Whatever the situation, when we find ourselves out of line from what God has commanded, we need a brother, we need a sister to come, to come alongside us with clear biblical instruction what we need to do to exhort us to obedience and to warn us of the consequences of our disobedience. A number of years ago, one brother admonished me for not carrying out God's commands regarding discipline for my children. I can tell you, admonishing somebody about parenting probably is the most difficult thing to admonish them over. My friend invited us to their home for a beautiful brunch and fed us a delicious meal. He really buttered us up and then eventually sat us down and said, Joshua, you are out of order from God's will in this area. If you continue with this, these are the consequences. I don't want you to face those consequences. I don't want your children to face those consequences. I know that you don't want those consequences, so this is what God says in his word for you to do. That kind of gentle, scriptural admonition, it can be hard to give. It, it can be hard to receive, but it is essential, and God commands us to do that for one another so that we may help each other to grow in obedience. Look at the next one. It says, encourage the faint-hearted. We admonish the idle, and then we encourage the faint-hearted. If somebody has a, a foot that's got gangrene, you have to amputate. But like John said, if you have a flu, you don't amputate the toe. Each person needs to be treated respecting their own condition and their own situation. And here we see the glorious wisdom of God put on display. He's given us more than one tool in the toolbox. Discipleship is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Sometimes a brother is unruly and out of order, and he needs to be admonished sternly. You know, spiritually speaking, he just needs to get a kick in the pants. But other times, a believer is wounded and beaten up and bruised, and they just need to be encouraged. The, the Greek word here for encouragement is paramythiomai. Paramythiomai. Para means alongside. Mythos means to speak or, or to tell a story. So the idea is encouragement. What Paul has in mind is somebody who comes alongside to speak to speak comfort, to speak consolation, to give incentive, to remind the person of the promises of God, of the faithfulness of God, of the, the glories of Christ. That's the idea that Paul has. Encourage someone by coming alongside them, speaking words of comfort and consolation and incentive. That's the word that, that John used in, in chapter 11, John chapter 11, when he talked about the Jews coming to comfort Martha and, and Mary after the death of Lazarus. Who needs that kind of encouragement? It says the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted means oligopsikos, literally meaning small soul. A faint-hearted one is, is somebody who's, who's so beaten down, so, so oppressed. They've withered into just a small little soul. They're withdrawn, maybe because of their own timidity, maybe because of the constant battering of their own sin maybe because of something that somebody else did to them. But at whatever reason, their strength is sapped. They can hardly breathe. They need encouragement. If we were to admonish that person sternly, they, they would be crushed. They need someone with great gentleness to come alongside, to console, to give them the word of God, to remind them of God's promises, and to provide incentive to press on. 
Next, Paul says, help the weak. The weak person literally means somebody with no strength. Asthenes, meaning, a meaning no, sthenes meaning strength, no strength. A weak person is the one with no strength. All of us can identify that. I think all of us at one point was at a, at a time when we simply had no strength. We had no strength to keep on going. We had no strength to, to continue battling against our sin or battling against our trial, whatever it may be. We were tired. We felt like we had nothing left and we were exhausted under this first uh, fierce situation, whatever it is. A dark night of the soul when we came face to face with our weakness and we had nothing left. And Paul says, help them. Help the weak. The word help it basically means to hold firmly. The sense is that we're devoted to the weak. It means hold firmly, but it's also translated to be devoted to. So we're devoted to the weak. We, they are weak. They're losing their grip. Their grip is slipping, but we hold on to them firmly. It's a strong word. It's not saying like, you know, a weak grip, but a firm grasp, like you're grasping the hand of somebody falling from a tall building and you're going to hold on and you're not going to let them go because you're not going to let them go. That's what it means here. The sense to help the weak, those who has no strength, you're holding on to them and you're not going to let them go. And there's a very interesting note that Paul Washer brings out as well in this text that that same word for help is, is translated to hold firmly in the context of holding on to the word of God in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, it, when it's describing the qualifications for elders, he, it says that an elder must hold firmly, the same word, and tekcho, the trustworthy word is taught. So the idea is this, we're holding firmly to a person who is weak. And at the same time, we're holding firmly to the word of God. So in our devotion to our brother, we hold firmly onto our brother and we're gonna hang on to that person and we're not gonna let them go even though they're weak. And we also heard, hold firmly onto the word of God because after all, how are we gonna help this person who's weak? What do we have in ourselves to give them? But by holding onto them and holding onto God's word, then we can help them by giving them the word of truth which is what a weak person needs the most. Compassions and feeling and sympathy, all that is wonderful, but it can only go so far. A weak person, a weak brother or sister needs the promises of our faithful God. So you help the weak by holding firm to them, not letting them go, and also holding fast to God's true and faithful word. And then lastly, Paul says, be patient with them all. This work of building up the body is, is hard work. And it's not just a one-time job, right? You, you don't like turn the key, press the button, and then it runs. It's long-term. And it's easy to be tired. And it's easy to think, oh, I'm just, I, I can't go on. This person, I'm trying to help. It's, it's taking so long. I can't deal with it. Or this, pers this particular trial. Or, it's very easy to become impatient. My beloved church, if discipleship was easy, if everyone got it the first time, there wouldn't be any patience. You wouldn't need patience. It's not patience if it's not long. The challenge is to stick to it, to persevere, to keep going. That's what makes the difference. And it's not just to keep going like with the task, but it's to keep going with a person, precious person, blot, bought with the blood of Christ. Finally, look at verse 15. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The sad reality is that not every person who we try to serve is going to respond. Some respond like the Thessalonian church did. There is just a God-glorifying transformation and repentance and love and grace, and it's glorious. It's glorious. And that was an encouragement to Paul. But that was also unusual for Paul. 
Most of the time, Paul had to labor and toil, and the church uh, would accuse him falsely, or the church would, would, would cause him real hurt and real pain. There were many people who abandoned Paul, people who caused Paul to have much sorrow. What does Paul say to that? He says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The one you're trying to serve may turn against you, may give you a cold shoulder, may, may avoid you, may, may not respond to what you say. Your encouragement may fall on deaf ears. You may be maligned or may feel mistreated. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good. Do not retaliate. Do not seek retribution. Remember how Jesus told us in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Always seek to do good. And the word seek here is not just a passive thing. It's not like you try to serve them and they don't respond well, so okay, um, I'll, try some, I'll try something else and uh, we'll just pass by each other. No, no. Look for ways to do good. The sense is not to passively tolerate those, but seek out ways to do them good. Let's bring this passage home. John and I regularly thank God for this body. John mentioned it in, in the pastoral prayer. You are our crown of joy. You are a great privilege to us. It's a great privilege to work among you to toil over you, to admonish you with the word of God. That's our privilege. It's a, a responsibility, but it's also a privilege. Please pray for us to remain faithful. Please recognize, especially the way that John gives his life away to serve you with the love and the care of Christ. Esteem him highly in love because of his work. Maybe you identify with the faint-hearted person or the weak person. Maybe you think, oh, how am I, I going to do any of this? How am I going to help anybody? I'm just, I'm the small soul. I, I'm the weak one. I, I feel like my, my strength is completely sapped. My brother or sister, reach out to those around you who can come alongside you with the comfort and encouragement in God's word. You are doing that. John mentioned it. You are doing it and, and praise God that you're doing it and may we do it all the more. Christ is sufficient. Christ will hold you fast. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever and he will provide you with all the spiritual resources, all the strength that you need in your weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. Maybe you're here and, and you are one that has not turned away from your sin. You're here as an unbeliever and you have not put your faith in Christ. In which case, you are not just the weak, but the Bible says you are dead. Spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin and subject to God's wrath for his holy judgment. So my urging for you is to hear my warning be reconciled to God. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn away from any self-good deeds or any self-accomplishments and put your hope in Christ. Repent of your sin and put your faith in Him. Also, we need to ask ourselves, are we seeking more opportunities to love and to build up the body of Christ? Is there more that we could do by God's help and strength to disciple the brothers and sisters in this church? Are you looking around for others to serve you or are you looking for others with, for whom you can serve? Are you trying to build others up? When you try to build others up, do you have just one tool or are you sensitive? Are you trying to amputate their toe when they have a flu? Or are you sensitive to the condition of that person you're trying to help? When things are difficult, are you patient? When you feel mistreated in your work, are you seeking to do them good? Oh, church, press on in the work that God has given you. What you are doing, do more with the strength that God has given you. 
press on, use every fiber in your being to do good to one another in this body and to everyone. And what is the greatest good that you can do for any person according to God's word? Romans chapter 8 says, to help them to be conformed to the image of Christ. May God help us to do that good to one another. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for saving us from our sin through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, thank you that you have saved us not only for ourselves, but to be one, to be among those, Lord, who belong to Christ, to be one through whom you will work in building up the body of believers. Oh, Lord, please forgive us for our indifference. Please forgive us for our callousness, for our impatience, for returning evil for evil. Lord, when we feel like we weren't treated the way we should have been treated. Oh, Lord, please help us to have the heart of Christ. I pray that you may please work in me and, and John to keep us faithful. Please work in this congregation that they may fulfill their responsibilities to their pastors and work in all of us, oh God, to fulfill these commands of scripture, to care for the body, to be sensitive to the needs of each person, to consider, Lord, the ones who are idle, who are unruly, who are out of line, and to come alongside them with scriptural affirmation. Lord, to provide encouragement to those who are faint-hearted, to hold on to firmly the ones who are weak, to encourage them with the word of God and to remind them of your faithfulness, to be patient with everyone. Lord, thank you for the work that you are doing in this church. We cannot take any credit in ourselves. It is your work that you are doing with your word by the power of your Holy Spirit as Christ promised he would do. Lord, may your work continue and abound. May we be on, on guard and we, may we be on the lookout, Lord, for the needs in the church to minister to, the, to build one another up that, Lord, you may make us mature in Christ to the praise of your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen.